Good morning, everybody. What a joy it is to see you this morning on this beautiful Sunday morning. Before we jump into the Word this morning, I just want to share with you a little bit about this previous week, what we experienced here at the church. Uh, This week was Vacation Bible School, and anyone who has been involved in Vacation Bible School knows that is a wild time for our church. Uh, I don't know the exact number, but we had around 100 students this week that were able to be here, 100 unique students that were here from various families to come and hear the good news about Jesus Christ. This week we learned all about the full armor of God, and in particular we focused on the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. All of these kids need to have faith in Jesus Christ and need to experience salvation through the gospel. And so we had an incredible team that served. If you served at VBS, would you please stand so that we can see and recognize you? Amen. And there are others downstairs that are currently serving that were also part of Vacation Bible School. And by God's grace, we were able to communicate the gospel faithfully and well, and the kids had an absolute blast. If you see Francesco Laverde, who was up here earlier for our exhortation, please encourage him and thank him for the hard work of putting it together. There is nothing quite like doing a Vacation Bible School, and he, this was his first year directing, and it is a crazy thing to learn how to do. So he, uh, by by God's grace, was able to do great things. Please encourage him if you have an opportunity. Amen. I also just want to put a call out there. If you're a member of our church and if you are skilled with computer type stuff, audio, video type stuff, or if you're skilled with text layout and graphics, PDFs and all sorts of other layout programs, or if you're skilled with website stuff, social media, content, uploading type things, if you're skilled in any of those areas and you're a member of the church and would like to volunteer to to use your gift to serve in those ways, please come talk to me. There's a lot of exciting things that we're looking towards in the near future, ways that you could serve and ways that you could assist us here at the church here by facilitating those gifts uh, here at LBC. So please talk to me if you're interested uh, in using those gifts here. Uh, Now let me ask that we please turn our attention to the Word of God. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 96. Over the course of this summer, we have been blessed to have a number of missionaries and evangelists and ministers from all around the world come and share with us how the Lord is using them in a context very different than our own. The goal in doing that is to open our eyes to the reality that God's kingdom is at work and growing all over the world. It's helping us to avoid the danger of ecclesiastical tunnel vision, to imagine that we are the only place that God is doing anything. It's very important that we also important for now have many of the letters that we read in the New Testament of report to the church while is expressed. We must also guard against the notion that evangelism or discipleship is somehow relegated to just things professionally. Don't think of it in the sense that missionaries spread the gospel. Christians spread the gospel. Missionaries just travel farther. It's not just pastors who preach the word. It is Christians who preach the word. Parents, teach others daily. Teach your friends from the word. Encourage your spouse from the word. Every single Christian is called to evangelize. We have all been commissioned by God to take part in the glorious work of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, whether that means going far around the planet or if that means going across the street. You're likely familiar with the passage that has come to be known, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, go therefore, 
to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. I'm sure that you are very familiar with that great commission. However, do you know the Old Testament great commission? That's the text that we're going to consider today. Please follow along as I read aloud, starting in Psalm 96, verse 1. This is God's Word, His eternal abiding Word that serves as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Follow along as I read now, starting in verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord your name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the people. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that today you would lift our eyes to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. I ask, Father God, that today as we come before you and we open our ears to hear the word physically, that you by your spirit would open our ears to hear spiritually. I ask, Father God, that we would worship you in spirit and truth in our hearing today. And Lord, I also ask that you would give us a passion, a zeal, a hunger that is unquenchable for evangelizing and for sending and being sent as missionaries. We pray that you would do this by the power of your spirit and for your sake. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, there are many ways that people approach missions and evangelism. As we're making our way through this psalm, we're going to see that according to God, the beating heart of missions and evangelism is a heart of worship. This sermon is intentionally without an outline. We're simply going to make our way through the text, and I'm going to make some observations and applications along the way. But you need to know as we do so that the book of Psalms is unlike any other book in the Bible. It is divinely inspired as a hymnal that God wrote for his people to use as a way to sing back truth that God himself has written about himself. And now it is a book of the Bible that explores us in a way that is different than any other book. In fact, I think that the book of Psalms is much more dis interesting when it comes to the emotional side of the Christian than any other book of the Bible. It has more authors than any book of the Bible, ranging over 1,200 years of, uh, of authorship. It is incredibly broad in its scope, and it contains 150 songs of immense variety concerning genre and style. 
Uh, when approaching any text of the Scripture, one of the first things that we are called to do is consider the context. However, that can be really challenging when you're studying the Psalms. Sometimes we have no idea what the context is. The reason for that is very simple. Some of them are even anonymous. We have no idea who wrote them. We don't know when they were written. We don't know what circumstances were going on that caused the author to write these things. But when it comes to Psalm, when it comes to Psalm 96... We do know the exact time this psalm was written. We do know because there's another location in the Bible where these words are found. Psalm 96 is a condensed version of the song that David sang as the Ark of the Covenant was being escorted into the city of Jerusalem. If you want to look into the entirety of that song, you can find all of the lyrics in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. But let me remind you of the series of events that were going on that preceded the moment that we're about to read. The Ark of the Covenant had spent years outside of the practice of worship of the Israelites due to the outrageous disobedience of the sons of Eli, the high priest. If you remember, they basically treated the Ark of the Covenant like they did in the Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark version of the Ark. They thought that if we just take it into war, it will serve as a totem of some kind that will fight against our enemies. They tried to use it in a superstitious manner to attack their enemies. And if you want to know about that in detail, we are going to be considering 1 Samuel in the near future, so we will preach through that text. But for now, what you need to know is this. The ark was lost at that moment. It was collected by the Philistines. They took it into their own city. And then through God's divine work, it was eventually returned. And when it was returned, the people did not take it back into a practice of worship. Instead, it, left, it was left in a place called Kiriath-Jerim for 27 years. And then after that, it was taken to another location. And after that, finally, David becomes king. Now, the entire time that Saul was king, he had no interest in restoring proper worship according to the old covenant laws of Moses. He had no interest in doing that. He didn't attempt to do that. He did not look for that ark. He just left it where it was. But now that David has been crowned king, one of the very first things that he does is he says, we are going to ensure that the kingdom is focused and centralized around God himself. And so he goes to this mountain that's near Bethlehem. He goes to this mountain that we now call Jerusalem. At the time, it was called Zion. It was a place that was a stronghold of the Jebusites. And he conquers it. And he says, this is where we're going to make the capital city. Go get that ark and bring it here. And so they begin bringing it in. Now, there was a little incident, a kerfluffle with a man named Uzziah who touched it and who died. And that put a little halt on the processions for a while. Three months went by before anyone was uh, cons uh, considered themselves capable again to go back out there and take this ark that they now recognize was filled with God's presence and should be treated with reverence. And so they went out there, they carried it this time the right way, and they brought it into the city. And so as they're making their way into the city of Jerusalem, everyone is rejoicing. They are celebrating. They are singing. They are dancing. They are celebrating that God himself is once again going to be worshipped in their city. And David led that procession, procession with singing and dancing. And the excitement and exuberance of the people was absolutely explosive. And you may remember the response of David's wife at that time. David's wife, the daughter of Saul, her name is Michael. She mocked David 
for debasing himself and dancing with the commoners and wearing clothes like the commoners. And David's response was, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will celebrate before him. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be debased in your eyes. In other words, he was saying to his wife, I do not care what you think about me. I care what God thinks. David's desire was to point everyone to the magisterial glory of God. Notice that he does not even refer to himself as king when he's speaking to his wife. He is the king. He has been crowned as king. He is the official ruler of the people. Yet, he does not call himself the king. Instead, he says that he is the prince over the peoples. And in doing so, I think he is intentionally using that word to make a point to his wife that I am not the ultimate one in charge here. God is the one in charge. And my goal is to give him all the honor and the glory, even if that makes me look foolish, even if my enemies use that as a way to mock me, even if my own wife calls me a fool, I don't care because I am joyfully committed to expressing the glory of God. Now, this moment is incredibly significant because from the time of this moving of the ark into the city until the time of Jesus' arrival, Jerusalem is going to be the de facto center of worship for the people of God. So, when we consider the lyrics of David's song, I want you to notice how he had a godly perspective of making this capital city a place that radiated with the glory of God, not to be kept there, but to be spread across all the ends of the earth, that it would be a place that preached the good news and was a lighthouse of truth for everyone else on the planet. So, with all of that in mind, let's dig deeper now into what we find here in Psalm 96, In verses 1 and 2, we read this. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Can you just see David making his way into Jerusalem, making his way up those steep paths, calling out to everyone, dancing in circles, and pleading with him, sing to the Lord a new song. Often when we think about the word worship, we think about singing. And the two are not identical, but Often in the scripture, the two do go hand in hand. Why is that true? Because people who truly love the Lord will sing to him. You are commanded to worship the Lord by singing to him. Some people are louder and more expressive than others. God doesn't care ultimately about that. The volume isn't what matters. But he does care about the heart. And if you refuse to sing, If you refuse to worship in song, it reveals a deeply concerning problem in your heart. David began this psalm with a call to the ends of the earth. Lift up your voice to the Lord. Bless his name. To bless his name means to recognize and speak well of all of the person of God, of everything that he is. The concept of the name in the Old Testament, the name of the Lord, it's just a shorthand way to summarize everything about who he is. His name equals his identity. It equals his character. So we are called to bless his name, to sing. Brothers and sisters, God loves to hear you sing. Not because you're good at it. Some of you might be. Some of you are not. I am among those who are not. Compared to the angels, we are all pretty far off key. 
but he loves to hear you sing for the same reason that I love to hear my daughter Augustine, my one-year-old daughter, sing. Not because she's good at it, but because I love her, because she is mine, because she is precious, and because I have affection for her. So I delight in hearing her sing. And notice, we are to sing to the Lord a new song. There will never be enough songs written about God. There will never be enough words written to encompass the incomprehensible glory of our God. We could combine every honorable word in our language in an infinite pattern and number of ways to describe him in lyrics, and it would never suffice to encapsulate the radiance and the splendor and the majesty of our king. This can be done in privacy, where we sing to the Lord in the privacy of our own car, but notice that David parallels singing with taking the good news to the end of the earth. This is not just to be done in a closet. This is not just to be done in the shower. You are called to sing in such a way that it actually takes the message out beyond your own home. Start again at verse 1 and see the link between singing and missions. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. Notice the verbs at play in these verses. We are commanded to tell and to declare all his marvelous works. Now, to whom are we to tell these things? All the peoples. Let's take a brief silent quiz here for a moment. Let me ask a question. How many times in the Bible do we find the word evangelism? Don't answer out loud, just in your mind. Get a number, fix that in your, in, in your mind. Now, how many times in the Bible do we find the word missions? Keep that number in your mind, hold that fast. How many times in the Bible do we find the word discipleship? Hold on to that number. Interestingly, the number for all of them is exactly the same. And if you guess the answer is zero, then you are correct. Never are these used words. These are theological categories of commands that the Bible gives. In the Bible, for example, we are often told to go and to tell and to declare. These are missiological words. Go and declare and tell. That is what we are being called to do. Notice how in verse 2 it states that the consistency of our evangelism is to be daily. Tell of his salvation when? From day to day. That's just a fancy Hebrew way of saying every day you are to do these things. This intrinsically means that you do this wherever you are. You don't have to travel somewhere to make this happen. You can practice this as a follower of God in your own house at this point. If you have other people living with you, you tell of his salvation to them. By the grace of God in our modern technology, we are able to do this even if you live alone. If you have a cell phone or a computer, you can tell of his salvation from day to day to people all around the world without getting out of your own house. Tell of his salvation from day to day. But the Holy Spirit clearly intends for there to also be a category of people who get up and who go far beyond their normal context and who carry with them the glorious news about the Lord. Verse 3 shows the extent of these missionary efforts when it says in verse 3, Declare the glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. Well, how do you do that? You go to all nations and you go to all peoples. In Romans chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, Paul explains that the Jewish people were incredibly privileged people. He puts it this way. 
then what advantage has the Jew or what value has circumcision? He says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, he's going to go on in chapter 3 to express the fact that just knowing about God does not save you, and the Jewish people could not be saved apart from Christ. But what you must understand is that the people of Israel were the one group on earth who were blessed to receive the truth about who God is and what he had promised. And their responsibility was to take that truth about God and go to the ends of the earth and tell everyone about him. But by and large, the people of Israel failed to do that. They failed to do what they were called to do. And by and large, they just were infighting and selfish over the course of their history. As you make your way through the Old Testament, you see that they often couldn't even get out of their own way and couldn't even teach their own people about who God was. The only, they only saw, the people outside of them only saw a pagan people who dabbled with idolatry just like the rest of the world. When the Assyrians or the Egyptians or the Amorites or the Perizzites or the Jebusites or the Babylonians looked at the Israelite people, they did not see who God was because those people didn't live for him or proclaim him like they were called to. In the time of Jesus, there were some people who were very serious about missions. The Pharisees were actually very serious about missions, but they weren't pointing people to the glory of God or the good news of his salvation. They were just teaching them how to follow external rules and how to be self-righteous. Jesus spoke to this very issue in Matthew 23, verse 15, where he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte which means somebody who is a Gentile becoming a Jew. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. We are called to go and tell what? According to the verse of his salvation. The message that we bear is the message of the cross. It is the message of the blood of Jesus that saves sinners. It is the message of forgiveness for sins. It is the message of repentance and of faith. Wherever we go, whether across the globe or across Levittown, for the rest of our lives, the content of our message never changes. If it does, then we are just going to make people children of hell. We are to tell of his salvation that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Now, in verse 4, David shifts away from telling us what to do, and he shifts to telling us why missions and evangelism must be done. What is the underlying motive? What is the driving force behind them? Verse 4, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. What drives you to tell others about Jesus? What motivates you to do that? The ultimate answer to why this is to be done is because Jesus is worthy. He is worthy to receive worship from every person, from every place. In John Piper's book on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad, he opens the book with a very powerful line in which he says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. 
During the COVID lockdowns, I made a series of YouTube videos called Feed My Sheep. It was a series of about 35 interviews with other pastors and missionaries in which I spoke about their ministries and how they were handling the pandemic and what they were learning and what they were teaching during those days. Those are still available on YouTube. If you'd ever like to see them, you can find them. Uh, The quality is not great, thus my call earlier for help from those who have technical skills in the church. But one of them that I did was with Kevin Cooney, who is a missionary in a very remote place in Indonesia. If you remember last year, we had Matt and Sharina Wiese here to talk about their preparations as they were getting ready to move to Indonesia, where they are now. If you remember, he talked about the flesh-eating bacteria and the wild illnesses that are there and the intense idolatry of the people and the fear that pervades their culture. That's the same exact place. In fact, they are going to serve alongside Kevin and his family in Indonesia. Anyway, as I was doing this interview with Kevin, he said something really interesting in our, in our conversation. One of the questions that I asked at the very end of our conversation was this, what keeps you there? And his answer was, biblical theology keeps me here. And he went on to explain that he has to keep his eyes on the fact that God is so generous that he created an entire planet with whom to share himself. And then he added, I would be home already if I tried to run on my compassion for the people. Now, Kevin was exactly right. The chief motivating factor is not even the people we are going to. To be clear, we should have compassion for the lost, but there is a higher reason to go and to tell. It is because God is worthy. He is worthy for us to spend our effort and our energy and our money and our time to be all about proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Several years ago, I was preaching at a sister church in Richmond Hill, Queens, and we sang a song based on these verses that uh, God is to be honored and feared above all gods. And after the service, a visitor to the church, I didn't know this person was a visitor. I had not met them before, but I'm not from that church. I wasn't sure who this person was. They approached me and they said, preacher, you're sending mixed messages here. This is a very disturbing thing to me because you just preached about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the one and only God. But in the song, you sang about how he was a God above all gods. What are you talking about here? Are there many gods or is there one? Well, notice that in your Bible, gods here is spelled with a little g. David is not giving validity to the idols of the nations. He's simply acknowledging the reality that there are hundreds of thousands of statues, figments of pagan imagination that people worship instead of giving their worship to the one and only true God. This is made very clear if you just keep reading because the next verse tells us, for all the gods of the people, worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. This is an intentional contrast to declare the only true God is the one who made everything. All these other things are just rocks and stones and painted idols. They are worthless. The point that the Holy Spirit is making through the Song of David is very simple. People need to know that there is a true God and that they're false idols. They're not real. They need to know that there is a God who is different than those idols. There is a God that has given everything to save them, a God who loves them, a God who wants what is good for them. David then calls on the peoples of the earth to recognize the greatness of God. Look at verse 7 and following. 
He says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. What does it mean to ascribe? It means to attribute something to that person. It means to openly recognize and verbalize something that is present in that person. It does not mean to give God something he doesn't already have. It means to acknowledge that he has something and declare it. David is calling on every family on the earth to recognize and verbalize that God is powerful, God is glorious. His holiness is filled with such radiant splendor that the only proper response of the human body is to fall down and tremble before him. Brothers and sisters, that begins with us. Are you reverently worshiping the Lord every day? Are you ascribing to him all the glory and all the power and all the might in your life? Are your coworkers and your family, are they observing you and seeing you give glory to him? David continues in verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Now, once again, David employs kingly, royal language in this psalm. I find it really interesting that David, the newly crowned king of Israel, looked out at his royal subjects and he said to them, the Lord reigns, the Lord rules, the Lord is in charge, the Lord is sovereign over us. He is the one who sits on the throne here. David makes it clear that the borders of God's kingdom do not stop where Israel's boundary markers are placed. He says he has established the whole entire earth. In other words, all of it belongs to him. He rules over every person in every place, every last one of them. And God is in charge over every single person because he created them and therefore they are responsible to obey and follow his commands. The good news that we must proclaim must always include the fact that we will all one day stand before God and give an account. We will stand before the perfect and eternal judge of the universe. He does not judge with partiality. Here it tells us he judges with equity, meaning he judges all people with perfect fairness. What does that mean? It means that every sin gets punished. Every last one of them. There is no escape from that. There is a really interesting shift that happens here in verse 11. David turns his attention to physical creation and says, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. Now I find it incredibly interesting that the scriptures often speak with poetically animate language about inanimate things like trees and fields and plants and the ocean. One place that we could find a parallel to these verses is in Psalm 148. Let me read a small section of that for you so we can get a feel for another way that the psalmist will poetically speak of the planet worshiping God. He says, praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. 
Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. What is so interesting about this is that there is, in a very real sense, an eager anticipation that exists in all of creation for the conclusion of the story God has run through history. The earth and the trees and the water, they don't have a mind like ours. They don't have a soul like ours. But throughout the BC broken by the fall of Adam and Eve, including the physical creation, is hungering for the Lord to restore all things to perfection that existed before sin entered the world. Perhaps the best place to find this is in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 23. Paul writes this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits, eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now there is so much in this place in a passage like this one that we are not going to take much away from it, but I do want you to know one thing to glean from this connection with our passage. Paul wrote in Romans 8, after the cross. He wrote this after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wrote this after Jesus was in heaven ruling as an authority, as king over all of his people. And even so, in the church age, Paul recognizes that the final portion of Psalm 96 has not yet been fulfilled. There is still more to eagerly anticipate. There is a conclusion that has yet to be wrapped up. Jesus is coming back again. And when he does, he will restore everything that has been broken by sin. With these thoughts in mind, look again at verses 11 through 13 in our text. Let the heavens be glad. And let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. David is calling on all of creation to look forward to the final day when the king in all his glory will come back. And he will judge the earth. So to close off, let me recap by way of culmination here in the sermon by asking you several questions. First, are you ready to stand before the judge of the universe? Have your sins been forgiven? Have you been purified by Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in him and him alone for the salvation of your soul? One day you will stand before him and give account. Are you ready to stand before the Lord? Question number two. Do you sing to the Lord? Do you sing to him at home, in the shower, in your car, when you're alone, when you're with other people, at your dinner table, with your children? There's only one command in Scripture that is more common than the command to sing. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will then express it 
through the gift God has given you to sing. Do you sing to the Lord? Question number three, do you tell of his salvation from day to day? You talk about what you love. You just do. Some of you talk about the Mets all the time. Why do you talk about the Mets all the time? Because you love the Mets all the time. And so whether they're doing well or whether they're doing poorly or whether they're often doing poorly, you still talk about the Mets because you love them. You talk about whatever you love. New parents who have just had their first baby talk about nothing but their first baby because they love their first baby. They have this newfound love and affection, and they have not yet learned that there are other things that they can speak about ever again because they have this new baby in front of them. Uh, when someone falls in love with another person and they're infatuated with them, they can't talk about anything or anyone else. It's just that person that is their sole focus. Why? Because you talk about what you love. You talk about what excites you. You talk about what mystifies and encourages and delights your heart and your mind. You talk about what you love. Do you talk about his salvation from day to day? Have you experienced his salvation through the gospel? If you have, then you should speak about it constantly. Every single day, our conversation should be filled with the fact that we have been saved by grace. Not because of our works, but because of him who loves us. Maybe you think that you do this well. A good way to answer this question is ask the people around you. Ask your wife. Ask your kids. Even ask your unsaved co-workers. Do I talk about the salvation I've experienced in Jesus Christ very often? How would they answer that question? Question number four. Are you committed to declaring his glory to the nations? John Piper once said that there are only three kinds of Christians when it comes to missions. There are zealous goers, zealous senders, and disobedient. You are either zealously committed to getting the news of Christ to the end of the earth by yourself going or by sending others. Now, perhaps one of you today are hearing the Holy Spirit pulling you out of your chair and sending you somewhere across the planet. Perhaps today your heart will cry out with Isaiah, here I am, send me. Perhaps that's you. And maybe the Lord will use you to go to the ends of the earth. Or maybe you are someone who will send. If you want to know how to be more committed to faithfully supporting and sending those who are on the field, we have a great opportunity today. The Shrek family is sitting right here with us. Our missionaries to northern Italy are present with us for a few more days. Talk with them today and ask the question, how can I be more faithful in sending you? How can I be more faithful in helping you and praying for you and supporting you and caring for you and partnering with you? How can I do that well as you continue to proclaim the gospel to the people of northern Italy? Go or send, but do not be disobedient. Are you committed to declaring his glory to the nations? Question number five, do you really believe that Jesus is worthy? Do you really believe that he is worthy of your time and your treasure and your talents? Do you really believe it's worth it to give up what you can't keep in order to gain what you can't lose? Do you really believe he is worthy? In 1792, Two young German men learned about the tens of thousands of slaves that were being shipped to the Caribbean islands of St. Thomas and St. Croix and St. John's and Jamaica and Antigua and Barbados and St. Kitts. And they learned about all of these people who were being sent there, who were being brought out of Africa and into these islands, and no one was telling them the gospel. People were only interested in 
in an evil way, stealing them from their country and selling them for cash. And these two young men were so incredibly disturbed, especially for the fact that they had no hope of eternal life, that they said, we are going to go. These two young men, Johann Leonard Dober and David Neishman, decided they're going to travel to serve as missionaries to those islands. And initially, they were told by their government, no, you cannot go there. You have no business being there. And they were not permitted. Apparently, no slave owner wanted them to go preach the gospel and have a revival among the people there. So the two young men were so committed to their plan, they came up with a way around the regulations. If only slaves were permitted to go to the islands, then they would become slaves. So the two of them sold themselves into slavery, and they went to the islands. And the story gets a little complicated because the Queen of Denmark got involved, and eventually they returned to, uh, to Europe after two years. But their efforts to, to share the gospel there opened the door for missions to take place in those places. And over the following two years, Moravian missionaries followed them. And including those two young men, those missionaries that went were able to start dozens of churches, some of which are still in operation today, and they were able to baptize in two years over 13,000 people, many of whom came to know the Lord and came to lead their own churches to their own people and began a legacy of generations of Jesus' followers. Those two young men who sold themselves into slavery did not know if they would ever get back to see their families again, but they knew it was worth it. When they left home, their last words were these, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. What was their motivation? Certainly there was compassion for the people on those islands. Certainly there was. What was their primary motivation? That the lamb would receive the reward of his suffering. The lamb is worthy to receive more worshipers. Is he worthy? The entire enterprise of missions and evangelism hangs on that one question. Is he worthy? Whether or not you proclaim the gospel hangs on how you, in your heart of hearts, answer that question. If you believe that he is great and greatly to be praised, if you believe that he is to be feared above all gods, if you believe that he is worthy of praises of every person on the planet, then you will faithfully go, and you will faithfully send, and you will faithfully tell, and you will faithfully declare, because he is worthy. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we ask that as we consider a text like this one and the incredible, powerful reality that you are worthy of everything that we have, Lord, I pray that the response of our heart would not be just to have a twinge of emotion here during a service or that we would have a feeling of guilt. Lord, I pray that we would be motivated to move forward and to be mobilized, to go out and to proclaim and to teach and declare about you, for you are worthy. Lord, we pray that you would use our efforts to bring in many to your kingdom. I ask that that would happen both here presently, physically, at our building here in Levittown, that our doors, our building would not contain the people that you bring through our doors. But Lord, I pray also for those who we send out and that we support around the world. I pray for the Shreks who are here with us today, that you would use their efforts to bring many into the kingdom, that generations from now, that we would see the ripple effects of your kingdom at work all throughout the planet. We thank you, Lord, that you are building your church. We pray that you would do that through our labors. But unless the Lord builds the house, we who labor, labor in vain. 
Lord, we ask that you would build the house. May we strive to serve you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.